Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Steph McKenna. And I'm Peggy Hughes. From the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, UNESCO City of Literature. So it's May 2023 and this episode is dedicated to possibly one of our favourite subjects, Max Porter. Max's latest book, Shy, was published a couple of weeks ago and we were lucky to have him back in Norwich once more at an event hosted by Indie Bookshop, The Book Hive, at the Octagon Chapel. So Peggy, this was a hot ticket for book lovers and many of our friends and colleagues in Norwich shared our excitement about seeing Max again in person. What do you think it is about Max's work that we love so much? Um, Steph, it's a great question. Yes, it was a very busy night. Very, very beautiful night in in the Octagon. Um, Yeah, Max's work, it's just not like anybody else's work, is it, Max's work? I mean, it's sort of right from when grief appeared. I remember reading it and just it just blew my mind. It's just sort of packs so much in in a, in, a, in a form that is poetry is theater is slender fiction uh it's it's so empathetic mm. um it's so musical and playful um it's, it's just hard to pin down what it's doing but it's doing it all it, it absolutely <laughs> is and we've we've discussed before the fact that max obviously writes quite slim quite slim yeah. books that you can read in a sitting but they also it's so rewarding to go back and read them again and again and again and draw more from them yeah. um, they really do pack a punch in a very tight kind of format they do you know and I think this is something that's interesting about prize culture for example where with the booker mm. um, the, the winning book will be read again and again and again as they sift through and that's the, that's the mark of a book isn't it that you, you, you want to return to it and you can return to it and it gives you something else every every time you read it you know mm. you meet it you meet it differently every time and certainly for me with shy, I read it really, really quickly when we were lucky enough to get a proof copy. Uh, Join the proof queue. Yeah, you, the have proof. To, you have to um, bust through it to get make sure line. someone else can get to it. Um, and I, I, I got, just absolutely gobbled it, as it were, and then and too quickly probably. But even then, I, I, I really admired it. But ahead of this podcast with Max, I read it again, much more slowly. And it just gave me a whole set of other things. Mm. You know, I, was, I read it with different eyes, different ears. You sort of read Max with your ears. Very <laughs> you musical, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so... Oh, it's just beautiful and, and, you know, such a such an act of empathy. And we do talk about that mm. in the podcast. There's lots about empathy and about kind of trying to understand the worldview of other people who sometimes seem at a distance or, or not, yeah, in, incomprehensible. If their behaviour is incomprehensible, what, what, you know, how do you, how do you ever kind of make peace with that? But anyway, they, so that's a little flavour of why we love Max, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> and a, a bon- an added bonus for me is... Um, there's an added experience with Max's work because you have you have the act of reading it and of course discussing it with friends and fellow readers but also with grief we had the stage adaptation and then you and I went to London to see the um, sort of live reading of Lanny at South Bank and they've done that again with Shy so there's always like a another sort of shared yeah. experience and these works are kind of adapted and there's just something I don't know there's multiple experiences mm. to be had with his work which is so really rewarding yeah. yeah and in fact I can't remember if we put this in the if we talked about this in the podcast but certainly it's something I, I, I think about with Max I'm wondering does he write with with that kind of versioning in mind mm. you know that relationship between between form is, is obviously something that's really important to him and I wonder you know grief when it first arrived, I mean, he, he, he said in other places, you know, he, he could never have believed it would go on to do all the, to meet all these readers that it's met and everything. But now he's in a very different stage. This is mm. his, what, fourth, fifth book, I think? Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, it's sort of you're writing into a different space then, aren't you? Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, it's really interesting. It is. Mm. Um, And as you alluded to, we managed to squeeze in a chat with Max at the Book Hive just before his event, which was a great setting with customers kind of browsing and chatting, books in the background. Um, And that must have felt especially pertinent for you and Max, given both of your backgrounds as well. Yeah, that's right. We both uh, work, come, well, Max more than me, really, but both come from a bookselling background. I briefly worked in, in a series of uh, these amazing secondhand bookshops in mm-hmm. Edinburgh. And Max, as he mentions in the podcast, um, he worked in several lovely bookshops in London. Um, and it's it's a special thing, I think, to be a bookseller. And, you know, we're very blessed in Norwich. We've got so many beautiful bookshops. And Bookhive, you know, of course, we work really closely with them. And I think many readers will meet those books through the kind of, uh, you know, enthusiasms of people like Joe and Thogton and Henry, sort of hand-selling books. That's, mm. in fact, what we, we do speak about in the pod where, um, you know, grief, I think, just touched so many booksellers. And that's how they it, it reached the readers it did in, in large part. So, um, so yeah, we had a lovely time perched up in the big window, sort of spying down on London Street and, and, and getting the getting the gossip. It was good. Yeah, we had a lovely view, didn't we, mm. up on the first floor. Yeah. Um, well, so for those who are new to Max Porter's work, his first novel, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, won multiple awards, including the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year and the International Dylan Thomas Prize, and was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award and the Goldsmiths Prize. His second novel, Lanny, was a Sunday Times bestseller and was longlisted for the Booker Prize. The Death of Francis Bacon was praised as a miniature masterpiece and his new book, Shy, has been called A Miracle of Language. Um, so now let's go over to you and Max um, having a very pleasant conversation together ahead of his event in Norwich at the Book Hive. I love that, but we, we should say yes. We're very grateful to the Bookhive for having us in the upstairs uh, fiction section of the bookshop today. Um, you, what you listeners can't see is we've got a little sign on the stairwell saying "podcast in progress," so that people can't come up. Um, but there might be a bit of ambient shop chatter, which is only nice because I think um, Max. Before we get into shy, which we're we're kind of speaking about today, um, we, we're both from a bookselling background. I think. Yep. You and I. Which where were you? Um. My first ever job as a bookseller was in the art department of Hatchards on a Sunday. And it was, I was kind of tricked into it to cover someone's shift and I loved it. Because it's, um, no disrespect to this carpet, but the Hatchards carpet's like three inches thick. <laughs> <laughs> and you squidge around in Hatchards and then you get an incredible, like, John Major would come in. And then two minutes later, Morrissey would come in. And then two minutes later, uh, like, you know, who was it that came in, like some kind of, like Sophia Loren or someone, jumping where they stay in London and they stay in those, like the Ritzen places and they just go and spend, like Elton John and people just come and spend like 700 quid on coffee table books. So that was a good thing. And then, um, then I worked for James Dawn and then opened two new shops for James Dawn and then left. <laughs> where, where did that fit? So, I, so when Grief came out, how long had you been? You'd been working for Granta then, hadn't yeah, you? Yeah, I'd been so seven been years at Granta, and then it, yeah, about, after about five years, it came out and, in 2015. And it was very unexpected. So, first of all, I was just doing my job mm. and was quite apologetic about it, but it seemed fine because I didn't think it would do anything. I thought it would sort of sell a few hundred copies and be like a curiosity. And then as it kept on being bought in different territories, like I, I had to have my out of office on for quite a lot of my time. And I had two phones and then my children were really young at that time, so I was very really sleep deprived. And it started to really overload me. Mm-hmm. And I want to be grateful and give things like proper attention. I found I wasn't. And then also there was this sort of philosophical problem of acquiring fiction and having to reject fiction mm-hmm. and having a small list. And, and that felt 
that I felt a bit queasy about that. Right, right. You know, I'd, like, people, I'd meet people and they'd be like, oh, you turned down my book. And I'd be like, oh, no, I didn't turn it down. I just, I only published six books a year. And it was, for, you know. And, um, yeah, so then I, so when that, when I knew Lanny was coming out, I thought enough's enough. Mm. But I have always maintained, and, I, and, and this is one of those things where you give an answer to a question and then you, and then you think, is that true? And this is true. I run this against my time machine truth test that I think I still think like a bookseller. That's what I think I was wondering. What 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 did that give you as a writer and so on? So what 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 does that mean in, in this case? Um, it means I just can't tolerate shoplifters. Um, if anyone's in the rough <laughs> if anyone's in the rough guide section, I just immediately think they're stealing because we used to have this guy that used to just have a market stall in Waterloo selling books he'd stolen from us. I think what it is is the, the kind of religion of the hand sell. I'm very into trust, and as a collaborator now, like ninety percent of my work is collaboration now, and, and it is based on an instinct of, of trust that if you violate that trust, mm -hmm. if you've got 60 copies of Max Porter's Shy to sell because you've got a good discount with them and, and someone comes in and says, oh, I loved um, Ellie Catton's Burnham Wood, what, what will I love next? And if you sell them that, then you've done bad book selling because mm. they're very different books. It's fine to have that conversation about how they're different books, but if you just flog someone that book because you want to get rid of it, you've broken the ancient yeah. art of the a contract. hand sell. Yeah, mm. and then when you get a hand sell right, it's like an anti-algorithmic genius isn't it and, and knowing your customers and, and having you know like I used to just love like that one crime novel like I used to have a, a builder that would come in who did, did everyone's flats up in Holland Park and he was a lovely clever well-read interesting bloke and he just liked Euro crime and he would read he'd done all the Scandinavian stuff so my challenge was what next so I got him into some French crime some really interesting French noir absolutely loved it then we both together read the Swalu and Soalem Walu books the Swedish yeah. books in the 70s did them all together and his 7.99 meant more to me than mm. you know people that were coming and just drop a grand on books about mm. sailing boats you know what I mean he, that, so that kind of that, that relationship trust and knowing people and thinking carefully like outside the kind of the human business of book selling, you know, like yeah. not not we're not algorithms, and nor are we imitating our successes, and nor are we necessarily thinking about what the publisher wants us to think about, and the way things are, are you know, are described by their covers, and all the kind of market signifiers that books come dripping in, like cutting through all that, and having a conversation between two humans about because you're like selling them their intellectual sure. sucker, aren't you? You know, it's the best. Yeah, it's beautiful. Do you miss book selling? I was only briefly a bookseller, to be honest. I was in a, in a bunch of second-hand bookshops around Edinburgh at the mm. time. And I do miss it. I, I, I was recently, though, back in a bookshop in Edinburgh, randomly wearing a pair of hospital scrubs. Too boring to win to. But somebody came in looking for a recent read. They were having a really difficult time. And I ended up kind of knowing what to yeah. point them to. Yeah. And it was just kind of weird that I was in this bibliotherapy yeah, 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 kind yeah. of outfit, you know. Um, but, yeah, I, I do miss I think... Yeah, partly the job we do now is matching people and books yeah. and opportunities, so it's, yeah. it's sort of yeah. in the same world at least. But um, Someone came up to me and said, uh, you know, people people go to the back of the queue and I'm always, it's usually because they want to tell me that they've got a tattoo of oh, wow. something Gosh. on their body that I've written or, or that they've been very grateful for the work and I kind of prepare myself. I'm like, here goes, this will probably be a difficult conversation. I always want to give it my genuine time mm. and attention and be humbled and privileged to have that encounter and it's lovely, but it also takes its toll after mm. years and years of like, I'm, I'm like a pain monster do you know what I mean people just come and load oh, their wow, yeah. their hurt into yeah. me and now they're all loading their, their, their suicidal Stuff kids in, into yeah. me but this woman kept going to the back and I thought oh, what's this going to be and she went don't want to talk just want to say thank you um, <laughs> 15 years ago you recommended Mallory Blackman's Cloud but some you know some book to my kid um, and it they, they didn't read and then they did 
and it changed their life and now they're someone who's like the product of reading and it was you that just yeah. like didn't recommend them like Harry Potter basically didn't just grab the book off yeah, the shelf yeah, and yeah. give it to them really listen to them apparently oh very nice I was like oh that wouldn't have been me <laughs> but, <laughs> but it evidently was to the other big yeah. talker <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. oh wow it's magic. magic it is magic it, I mean, it is kind of magic and I'm profoundly grateful for it and you know, even, you know the conversations you have with you know the conversation I was having here with Joe in the book Hive in Norwich just before you arrived was you know I'd recommended him a book last year mm -hmm. He loved it. He's recommended one to me. You know, I love that. Lovely. Well, well speaking speaking of magic, we, we yeah. are this this book is kind of a form of just just magic. And, and we, you mentioned triptychs um, just earlier in the in in this conversation. And, and I know that some people have, have seen this as the the third the third part, the third sort of triptych piece to to grief and to Lanny. Is mm -hmm. that was that conceived then? Is that something that when you when you set out to write this or or to write all three that they were going to be a, a trio or not? No. But I'm really happy with it. You know, like, I love the number three, and they're all concerned with triptychs in some way. So I'm delighted with it. And also it sort of gives me permission to feel like I'm moving on. And I want to move on. And I don't, you know, formally I want to move on. And from the question of boyhood, I want to move on. Never will, I don't think, never can. But but explicitly want to write something quite different next. I know what that is, and I'm excited about it. So I love the idea of it being a trilogy. Also, I really like... Joyce Carol Oates said a thing recently about someone was accusing her of overproducing. And she was like, well, I, I just write books. You, you can, some of them are really good, some of them are really bad. You can take your pick, you know. And I like the idea that we would just sort of get away from fetishising about an author's biog or CV or whatever and just, like, consider the work. And if people can do that for themselves outside of any critical framework, then that's brilliant. That mm -hmm. people might pick up on the idea of the boys in the first book and see them and question the idea of what, like cause and effect and like I love the idea that there's a sort of tapestry across people's work and I like that when I read people same yeah no same especially with poets you know when you read poets like I just read a whole poet's work um, from start to finish and it was such a rewarding thing to do and the way that you can see that there's this sort of germ which is being which is present ever present in their work but then is also kind of flowing in and out and then is sometimes very high in the mix and sometimes hardly there at all mm. unless you really read their mm. work and that's just the joy of reading, isn't it? Mm. So I hope that they, I hope they repay a kind of attention because they are short, but I think they, they're very, very, very dense, and therefore, like, there's a lot, like, to reread and rethink, like, not necessarily even to reread, to just live with them, to yeah. think about them once you stop reading. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. They may be slender. I remember my, my granny used to give me a tenner for Christmas, and I bought a poetry book one one year, and she said, "Oh, you don't get a lot of bang for your buck with that, do you?" But actually, yeah. you do, granny. You really you know, do. There's a lot in there, and like this, there's a lot to. Unstitch in there. I wonder. It's something that um, Stuart Kelly said in a, in in his review of your book, a very very glowing review. And he he's, he talks about the um, to compress so much linguistic elegance into such emotional chaos mm. being this real feat. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that linguistic play, that kind of, and not just the typographically, mm. but mm. but in every sense. Well, that's a nice thing. I haven't read this review, um, but I like. I'm interested in the idea of of like linguistic. So uh, things like lyricism or, or, or musicality in the prose, and, and that was very close to the surface and very accessible for me writing Lanny and Grief because, you know, Grief was about someone who was obsessed with poetry and therefore had at his disposal and then with his accomplice, this bird, um, various different poetic traditions to, to pick around in, and it was very playful in that regard. You had Dickinson and you had Hughes and you had the idea of nature and tricksters and therefore it lent itself to beauty, I think, I hope, and also fables. It lent itself to kind of playing with, with the kind of um, archetypes of myth and stuff. 
And this one on the surface, and then Lanny obviously with nature and his love of his love of the natural world and stuff. This one on the surface is a far uglier proposition. There's a very great amount of. I mean, it should almost come with a content warning in today's climate, right? It's, there's very unpleasant language. There's homophobia. There's sexism. There's um, a lot of very coarse and like roughly done nineties historical detail, cultural detail, like, and I've broken all the rules of historical novels, it's just there on the surface because he's a teenage boy, so it's not subtle, he says, he's listening to Kenny Ken. And I am interested in where, therefore, the beauty is, and I'm writing, editing this book really slowly over a period of months, so I was like, is there a way to create um, a lyricism that's underneath the surface of, mm. of the thing? Like, what would it look like if a book had a baseline that was, order, that was, that was the reader's responsibility to, to hear and unpick and how, you know, and, and you know, does the subject being ugly mean that you can't have beautiful language? And then and what, what is beauty? Like, for me, often, beauty isn't necessarily in the sentence, it's in the juxtaposition. So I think there's something quite beautiful about, or something quite true, and therefore available for a beautiful interpretation by you, the reader, in, in going from, like, a ketamine sex scene where he's really confused and upside down and looking at his, her Buffy poster on the wall to a moment of like deep shame when he did something terrible and has to explain it to his analyst. Like they're separately not very beautiful things, but I think there is something inherently beautiful and tender and compassionate in the movement between them. And I'm, mm. I'm interested in that because you could write both those things off mm. if you wanted. I mean, there's some negative reviews of the book have. They're just like, don't buy it. Like one of the negative reviews just lists these cliches, it says. Where at the end, Shy says, um, you know, he wants to uh, he wants to get tattoo, he wants to get turntables, he wants some facial oh, I hair. I love that bit. Yeah. When I thought, how interesting you say it as a cliche, because having been a teenage boy, they're real things. Yeah, to go like, to harvest with your mum. If that's all nice. your mates, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, you have to go harvest with your mum is a fucking dream. But also, like, if you haven't got facial hair and all your friends do, perhaps you perhaps this it's a bit like people have never lost anyone. They they don't respond in the same way. They, they have a hardness. They see it as a literary artifice which requires and, and invites no emotional participation on their mm. part. Whereas I feel very, very tender towards that child who wants to have facial hair because all his mates mm. have. And bound up in that is his whole agony um, and, and self-presentation and, and, and all the kind of sharp teeth of being something in an ecosystem of others. Like Because yeah. human life is relational. So if he doesn't if he feels inadequate in relation to other people then that's profoundly painful like potentially even cliched because it's so true right mm -hmm. <laughs> so i'm going to try and go into that but but much more aware of what happens either side of it to kind of bathe that in your attention um to create these sort of like yeah i mean i don't want to use too many like, weaving analogies but to to, to to create a sort of attention to, to connectivity in the book mm -hmm. so that like his desire for facial hair goes back to the beginning of the book where you know where where he's sort of keenly aware of everybody else sleeping in the building like this sense of what everybody else is doing mm -hmm. and like because i i give you very little shy he's a creation of other people's imagination and i think therefore that's like saying to you your shy is necessarily going to be completely different to mine and that's mm -hmm. a beautiful thing yeah, like that's why there has to be thing. so much space in these books like yeah because i'm not just walloping you around the head with a load yeah. of exposition or yeah, packed in character work, you and know. you'll get a lot of people bringing their own shies to the book. I imagine it's that that'd be a scream quote. You know, the poem is the white spaces in the poem are yours to think yourselves in, to oh. think yourself in. I'm just oh. mangling the quote, thanks. But I love that. <laughs> but you know, yeah, it's to yeah. bring bring yourself. But that's one I thing love that W. S. Graham. Oh, I know. But there's a the sort of presentation of shy to the world, and then the shy inside shy. Mm -hmm. I thought was this amazing sort of hinterland between the two. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd love to hear more about. Well, that, that comes from me working in the theatre a bit and just thinking about the kind of 
context of the person on stage giving a monologue and the extent to which the jeopardy there of oh, he could say anything or he might forget his lines or a piece of lighting might fall on him or I might cough is just the scratching the surface of that the electrifying nature of that encounter and I want that in books I want it present I want that same feeling of oh, like, like the scene I described where he does the violent thing after the sex I'm, I want that kind of <gasps> uh oh I've done that like I've done that terrible thing. Um, I mean, I haven't done that, but like the, I want the reader to feel that 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 jolt. In, uh, I don't want a smooth read. I don't believe in the smooth reading experience. It's, it's artificial and it doesn't yield anything. And I want it to yield real feeling. And, and therefore, I think to me, what you've got to do is not just he's delivering. Like if it was just him walking through the night, then I don't think it would be possible to fully create a believable collaborative entity for you. I think I have to bombard him with the mum and the therapist so that you, there's a sort of 360 degree mm. cultural, psychosexual, political weather system around him in which you are conducting. Mm -hmm. If you're a thinking, feeling reader. Like, it's mm. very easy to just not buy that. You just be like, it's just, it's just pieces of a book. Where's the rest of the book? You have to do that work for yourself, I think. Yeah. Closer to reading poetry, perhaps. Yeah, I can't imagine But you really don't get a lot of bang for your buck, your grandmother would say. Well, but I like, think if you think yeah. into it, you do. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I'm quoting I'm my granny and disagreeing with her, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I love you, granny. She's long gone, my granny. But <laughs> yeah, rest in peace, <laughs> you generous, you generous <laughs> yeah. woman. Yeah. But, um, I love there's four little shies down there just lighting up their big joint. Isn't that wonderful? It's like the book I've it's, paid it's some it. local they've, teams they've to come down and spark up a little bifter. Yeah, I did want to ask Max just about you know you mentioned theatre and and, mm, and that seems mm. to be such a rich space for you. It seems like all of your work is adjacent to other, other art forms and mm, other mm. other ways of thinking. And this one, um, music, I would say, is is one of those. Could you speak about that? Your your own relationship to music, the book's relationship to music, the drum and bass. Well, I want to write musical prose and 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 have tried to and have tried to work out to the extent that it it is bespoke to each book. Like the musicality is 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 inherent, I hope, but also explicit sometimes. Um, there are characters in my books that have a musicality in the way they speak, like Crow, I think, was a very musical device, and he was put in there to disrupt and, um, and tease in, in the same way as like uh, um, an improvisational solo would in, in, a, in a set piece of jazz music like he, he has um, like that's where that's where the give is in him is as a device and with this one because it's shy's obsession is drum and bass I didn't want to write too much you know like that kind of awful writing particularly about particularly by a certain type of man about like the music they used to love <laughs> which is sort of tinged with nostalgia but is, is also sort of defensive it's also like I'm mounting a defense of why Oasis were a great band in 1995 like it just makes your flesh creep, doesn't it? Like, because it, it's sort of um, it's that kind of NME style blokey journalism as well, and there is a lot of that around drum and bass. And you know, when you read about people write write about the music they love, it's always a bit cringy. And I wanted to not be me. So if I were to write about drum and bass, I'd sound a bit like, like I'm a guest on a Six Music podcast talking about why it was like <laughs> talking about like, making a case for it. Basically, and I didn't want to make a case for it. I wanted him to be. Just in love with it. Yeah, just so in love. I wanted his despair and his suicidal feelings to always be tethered to joy. And my experience of speaking to people who have lost people or have felt that way is that the joy is very close to the surface, particularly actually in the, in the, in the, in the kind of moment of crisis. Like people often talk about there being this real, like everything was going so well. And he talked so passionately about his love of this. Mm -hmm. And then so therefore it's such a shock, right? And I just think that they're, that's because they're, they're, they're organically the same thing. It's, it's, it's like sociologically and like, um, therapeutically insane to try and separate manic unhappiness from like jouissance. I just think I don't buy it. 
And so then I had to write, then my editors said, no, but we do need more of why he loves his music. And I was like, well, it's just obvious, it's jungle, everyone loves it, it's the best. <laughs> it's the future, it's the best. <laughs> yeah, because it's just like, you know, uh, really joyful, listen to it. Uh, so then I wrote, I wrote how he feels about it, and then I edited the book listening to that music to try and get the whole BPM in the book. So the whole thing should actually, particularly those sections, should feel like they are infused with that music, and, and, and that music is in the like granular level of the sentences. And that was fun to do, but then I have to undercut that with his actual presentation to the world, which is that he just says, yeah, it's amazing, I love it. <laughs> and you know, there's a bit where he's like, yeah, hardcore, fucking love this tune. You know, because that's very important, because... We not or he's not a forty-two-year-old prose stylist, you know. He's a teenage boy, and so I wanted always this disconnect between what's going on in his head and his inability to express himself, and and that that is pain, isn't it? You know, when you when you when you feel very strongly about things and you can't explain why, mm -hmm. and we shouldn't explain why, you know. It's private for him, and I wanted that kind of bubbling um, discomfort mm -hmm. in his love of it, um, mm -hmm. but also, you know, it's a period piece, and his enthusiasm for that scene is real. And I and I and I was a bit more eclectic than shy in my music taste, but I did feel that like there was this music that was ours, mm -hmm. and it was um, it was the simultaneously like the total climax of the technological opportunities of the time, and it was being made in bedrooms by people like us, like on equipment that we could potentially afford, like Gosh. with our Christmas money. Do you know what I mean? Like we could buy, you know, an MPC with our friends and then make beats in our sheds. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to get to that excitement because I think excitement and despair are connected mm -hmm. you know like the engine of shy's unhappiness um has to has to be fueled by these these passions as Possibility, well mm -hmm. yeah and um, you just mentioned the historical how far is this um an historical novel or as Stuart kelly again uh, posits in his uh, review actually the gothic he, he sees oh, really? he sees the gothic yeah the kind of uh, the, the the wandering soul the big mm -hmm. house the mm -hmm. walk in the woods and all that uh, he would wouldn't he he, he, would, he yeah. would yeah it's very plangent uh, mm -hmm. what's your view on that does that resonate yeah it does yeah i mean i yeah. Yeah, the kind of building blocks of it are like are timeless, and I one of the things I felt quite certain about all the way through this book was that it could be, I could get it right if I wrote it in a medieval period. It started as a as a medieval manuscript illuminator who was starting to leave annotations, sacrilegious annotations, in the margins of the books, and then thinking to cause trouble, and then was finding that the people that were buying the books were loving the annotations and were keen to find out who was leaving them, and that was the sort of um, the time travel aspect of that. And then so I, I hoped that I could do this set in 2350 I hope I could do it I hope I could do it justice you know in a paleolithic setting I hope that that human emotion is and human consciousness is and particularly the, the elements of this but where different consciousnesses human and non-human pattern one another and, and you know the porousness of shy as a consciousness I hope I hope doesn't depend on the setting at all and do, you, do you really think that though given the, the where we are in the world today with I don't know empathy and lacks of empathy and, and just the how we communicate with each other. Do you think it would say that we're going to in a thousand years' time? I don't know. It's just sort of in terms of how we spiritually receive each other. I suppose. Do you think it will always be? The same? I think Has we. It always been the same. I think we're using only a fragment of our capabilities, and I think it's one of the great shames, and it's one. Of, it's why indigenous cultures had it right, and we've gone further and further from it in industrialized or what 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 like, you know. Amazonian shamans would call it the merchant, the mercantile society, like merchant culture. These buildings, this the history of colonialism and white supremacy is a force, and it's got us further and further from the ability to actually commune mm -hmm. and to understand what our minds are in relation to others, and what growth is, and what dependency is, and what therefore gratitude is, and what tenderness is. Like I don't buy, and I'm not saying this in a defensive way because of some of the ways this book's been received, but I simply don't buy 
I mean, that's why it's gothic. Gothic has, gothic has love, right? Gothic has romance, because I don't buy the equation between extreme tenderness and sentimentality, especially with men, especially with masculinity. Like, look where toughness has got us. Like mm. a crisis, like a a global crisis of violence and pain. And um, look at Andrew Tate and these 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 bastards. You know, like look at where we are at with with helping men not weaponize their anger and you know not just against women but against each other like so i think the idea that you fail a person like shy if you give like there was this sort of question about oh it's a, what's he say it breaks the seinfeld no hugging rule i was like i just don't uh, the hug as a, as, a, as a sign of weakness i don't buy it mm. but also that is a very very carefully calibrated professional response by those people for that person I can't see that it's sentimental. Like it contains rich amounts of sentiment, I think, because they care for him, they love him. But also he's just, no spoilers, done enormous damage <laughs> to humans and potentially himself and also to a building and like, you know, broken the law. And their first response is touch. They go to him and touch him. And I think that's like profoundly important. They don't use, like, they have no language for that moment. It has to be physical contact. And I think that's beautiful and quite radical and moves me as an option. Like this sense that this person down there with his hood up breaking the law is, is society's waste product who is therefore beyond our capable, like we've run out of ideas. Like mm -hmm. what, about the, this, what about the first idea? Which is to go and talk to him or to hold him. Like I don't know. I don't. Oh yeah. I'm so I'm interested in that. As mm. and I would say that in terms of the future capabilities of the species, I think just we need. Just a small question. Well, just, but, <laughs> but I've got an answer, <laughs> and it's to radically re-engineer society along kindness lines. Like I, I do think that there's been a way. Particular. I mean, here now, twelve years of Tory rule. Like we've chronically undervalued. And if you look at the way we've under, like look at the way we've undervalued. Um, the art, like the arts, for example, or or the care system, social care, like taking two hundred and fifty million quid out of the social care budget, is not just an accident. It's an ideological decision, which suggests that that the poorest society, the poorer aspects of your society, or the most vulnerable people on planet Earth trying to come here for sanctuary or safety or whatever, aren't deserving of even your your fundamental, your basic, like the basic handbook of human behaviours, like your moral compass, you know, your instinct mm -hmm. to care for others, like to to decide on an, on a nation state level. That, that that that's not your priority is is chilling as it trickles down and so i'm interested in the way that you can begin i'm interested in the ripple effect of kindness like i saw one of your questions on this piece of paper about notionally where do i see shy mm, you've been reading ahead yeah now look well, where, well i just well, where 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 i see shy is where i see us all like i think we have to re-energize um the basic toolkit the, you know the basic sense of what is what 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 is hydration? Where does water come from? What 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 is you know what is parental care? What what are its obligations? Like what what is how does a marriage work? How does a nation state work? Like what? Because otherwise you just you just rush you just rush to death. You just rush to oblivion. And um, in a way that I find the kind of zombification of late capital, like the sort of like the fact that you would choose profit over over kindness is mm -hmm. is so deranged. And, and rather than belittle teenagers that point this out to us and say, oh, you'll grow up, you'll get over it, it's actually hear that howl of rage and be like, they, they were right. Mm -hmm. And it's been, I've been, I've been like really pro-teenage talking about this book because I just don't like, especially with teenage love, you know, you know when like you, you, your teenager comes home and says they're in love and you're like, it's a crush. It is, it is literally the highest pinnacle. It's like the cathedral of human emotion, isn't it? Like it's ne it's never gets more patterned, more dangerous, more... 
interesting never 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 more nooks and crannies never more like more more like close to the like and, and like I, I want that now like i envy it like it's an astonishing thing as a society we should envy it same as the activism same as like that stone cold clarity mm. of like the climate movement like that this way lies death and pain and corruption and injustice this way lies a chance mm -hmm. why wouldn't you choose and we're like <laughs> you're going over that <laughs> do you know what i mean like we sort of like that combination like, there's a kind of violence inherent it's a bit like um well to me they're they're, they're they're parallel forces it's a bit like misogyny like it's it's it comes from a place of fear but it's such a habitually weaponized instinct that it that it like overrides everything else and and and, and if you chip away at it it's because people are frightened or they've never or they've never been in pain so they don't understand yeah, the, yeah. you know um, that was a sort of long rambling no, answer to a question. Great. I, I do have a little, well, you, you'll have seen from my questions, I've got death written in what looks like a, a little coffin. And you did just touch on death. I mean, your, your work has sort of, you know. It's in the death it's, section it's, of the book, It's shop. there, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, is that always going to be in, in, in the work for you, do you think, it, it, explicitly or otherwise? Or, or the next work, is that also going to be something that you, is it something you'll ever write away from, do you think? No, I think I'm very pro. Very pro-death, very pro-death talk. Like one of the happiest events I've done in the last couple of years was a palliative care conference. Oh. And I really just felt among the good people, like, a bit like midwives, you know, like the people that bring us in and the people that send us out, they just really know. And all the kind of peaks and troughs of, of like life in, 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 you know, developed or, you know, digital society, like the wild west of phones and all this kind of stuff now. But they just see it in context as just the kind of bump of life. But actually being kind to someone as they're dying is it. And talking honestly with people, like I think with the length to which we're not being honest with one another at the moment about the important things is just extraordinary. It's as if, you know, and if you saw it from space, you'd be like, they are all very busy, aren't they? They're good and distracted from the key things, which, mm -hmm. is, which is health and safety and care and, um, and, and, the, and the incredible shortness of life. In fact, you're dying from pain. Like, you can strap as many eye watches and phones and gadgets and do as much running and, like, I'm a terrible taker of supplements. I'm, like, chugging back maca and mushroom powder and all this shit at the moment. <laughs> like, in this desperate attempt not to get in on book tour, but it was also this desperate attempt to stay alive, right? Mm. And so much good stuff happens, I think, when you talk to young people, particularly about mm. death and dying. And, um, and, you know, we had that moment in the pandemic, didn't we, where we sort of saw death mm -hmm. and started to think that there were maybe better ways to build a society and like maybe elevate care as a, as a category of human behavior and then we just rubbished it all because like the race for profit is just so like the zombification of that sort of to say but I, my death drive is strong and gorgeous like i think talking about death is it, it like is really wonderful i'm not morbid i'm a very ecstatic person you know you know i'm, I'm jolly can, i'm fine like you can have jokes um but what i sh what i think is so dangerous is denial mm. and and particularly with with shy's you know, the book the book doesn't skirt around the fact that Shai is someone that is take, thinking about taking his own life. And I was just so careful not to tinge that with that judgmental, um, the sense that you bring shame. I, I just don't buy it. Like, it, it, it's a decision. And, and I think it, we should, we should uh, the, the question of like, it's still being almost discussed with the language of criminality. It's a bit like funerals still being fundamentally defined by the kind of watered down Christian idea of um, of the kind of kingdom of heaven and some have access to it and some don't like it's just all so poisonous as a language and as an emotional framework it's so counterproductive and it's so ungenerous and I think there are better ways there are more there are, be there are, there are ways that make it about life and love and so I hope my books all have this sort of um, are all flooded with this kind of like anti-getting better and like accepting of brokenness like, like 
and I don't know if that makes me like I joke about before we were on air, listener, <laughs> I was about being labelled a hippie. And I think that's very interesting because again, it's something to do with masculinity, isn't it? The idea that to talk about these things makes you weak, mm. and therefore um, of of a kind of fringe of people that that still care about such outdated things as. Uh, you know, tr- hugging trees. And all. Like trees are literally giving us our oxygen. If we can't give them a hug, then who? You know, what are we wasting? What are we going to when I hug my my um, you know my exercise bike? Um, so I, I do think that the death thing is like uh, my next book is going to be about something completely different. But when I think about what I'm going to try and say about politics and the question of goodness in in the political realm and about eccentricity and people that remove themselves from society, those things are really closely connected to to the expectation of us in life to make money, be famous. Like I re- listened to this amazing podcast about happiness. Uh, the guy that's run the longest ever study of human happiness at Harvard University, it's been like eight generations, they've studied a relatively skewed sample, but nevertheless a huge number of people. And at the end of life, it's a cliche, right? But no one talks about their job. I wish I'd status. worked more, e.g. Yeah. No, and, and they're fame. Mm-hmm. I wish I'd won. I wish I'd been on the grant of best of young novelist list. <laughs> no one talks about that. They spend their lives obsessing about those things, and then they start dying. And they think it's all relation. Human beings mm-hmm. are relationships. All they talk about is their relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I wish I had given more time. I wish I had taught more carefully. I wish I had listened more carefully, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. So these books are a kind of plea. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> someone like Steve in his book, The Teacher, mm-hmm. who is gently cajoling Shy, listening to him, being very, very angry with him at times, um, trying to get him to just, trying to equip him with a kind of vocabulary outside his own manic self-absorption. Like, he is, to me, like, a genuinely heroic figure in our society. And I just wanted to include someone like him in a book because we've met those people, right? And they're just sure. best, Agreed. best of us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just finally, Max, I mean, the book's in the world as of just last week, I think it, it dropped. Uh, and, uh, it <laughs> That's looks, the uh, drama-based terminology. Yeah, yeah. It looks Thank beautiful. You. I'm sure the Faber production department love you again with, with this stunning uh, typography and, and, and everything. But what, I mm. wonder, I mean, it's had, had some sensational reviews, including I think it was the Irish Times said it was a, a perfect book. It's already a UK it's a number one bestseller. What, what, beyond all that, what do you hope it will do for readers? How, uh, how will it reach them or land? Um, I do really like the idea that people start the book and don't know what's going on and they find that a bit upsetting and then they land and begin to understand what's going on or it teaches them to read it and they just think about different types of works of art like works of art that don't necessarily adhere to your expectations of how a novel should work and then don't patronise you and teach you to understand them or even let you understand them or misunderstand them at your own leisure like I'm very hands off there's no real like there's a, there's a moral element to this, but it's not mine. It's theirs, and I, I hope they're as I say. I really love the idea that they're collaborated with. I love the idea because no, I mean I'm, teenagers are reading it, and I'm getting amazing feedback and like incredibly heartening things. Like uh, last week, a foster carer stood up and just just like burst into tears and was like, "Thank you," because I've worked with hundreds of shies and I've never found them in a novel. You know, there's YA books about happy teenagers, sure, but like in the world of adult literary fiction, like why isn't anyone writing about these mm. these people? You know, so she was really grateful, and I was very grateful in turn. It was a beautiful moment. She's like, she covered in tattoos. <laughs> she was just wicked. We had a hug. You know, that's all lovely. <laughs> but for me, actually, one of the things that I've really loved because of this, this, I think everything is communication, isn't it? If there's a crisis in masculinity, I think it is in communication. I'm someone that's very worried about tabloid newspapers and how we, the language we use, particularly when it's a historical, like. To take a simple example, like the idea of a swarm, like of migrants, like we are the swarm. We went and swarmed, mm-hmm. and look what we did to the world. And and that, so the kind of 
the idea that you would just reverse it. And the most amazing, unexpected thing happened with this book, which is that men of approximately my age got in touch to talk to me about their shies. People that don't really read my books or had, or had previously been like, Red Lanny, it was good. Yeah, don't you think people will think it's you when he's masturbating? I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's a risk. <laughs> but, um, but men getting in touch with me to say I'm in, I'm in contact now yeah. with the ones that we lost and able to think for them and with them in a way that I hadn't and, and didn't realise I needed that in my middle life, you know, like raising my own children or in my marriage or whatever. And books shouldn't have a therapeutic effect, right? It's extraordinary. But it's extraordinary. Yeah. And I feel yeah. absolutely honoured that people might just quietly... Because you can't... You never know. It's a bit like musicians say, like, if there's just one kid, you know, in, like, rural Estonia who's just got my music in the headphones and is just into it, then that's it. That's all. And that's I feel enough. the same. Like, if there's one bloke who just hasn't really been able to look at those feelings or process those feelings and is just given a little playground for those emotions in the in the short space of time it takes to read this book, and that's magnificent. And books don't need to do that. It's a bonus if they do. Like it, it's just it's just content in the great sea of content, isn't it? But if it if it gets its claws in, in a way that might therefore make people just think about yeah their language and their relationship with others, then then I'm absolutely humbled and thrilled. Yeah. A big thank you to Max for his time and make sure you listen back to our other podcast with Max from 2020 when he's in conversation with artist and producer Sam Winston about the collaborative exhibition A Delicate Sight and the relationship between creativity and the senses. If you have a question or you want to get in touch with us, you can find us at Writers Centre on Twitter and Instagram, on Facebook by searching for National Centre for Writing, and don't forget to sign up to our newsletter by visiting our website, nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As a UK-registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on the website by going to the Support Us page. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in your podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. And please do rate us and leave us a review because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode.